Good morning. Well, we, uh, we did it. We made it all the way to the seventh commandment this week. And so uh, as I've prepared my time with you guys today, uh, most of the time, and this is something Jamie Rasmussen taught me years ago. He said, you know, you kind of need something right off the bat, kind of grabs everybody's attention. And uh, we kind of refer to that in preaching as a hook. And so normally we'll tell kind of some narrative or some story that kind of makes the central point or the theme of your sermon. And um, one of the values that we have here at Scottsdale Bible, you guys could all repeat them with me, but we talk about getting God, we talk about getting real, and we talk about getting out there. And so as getting real is one of the ways that we express our values here at Scottsdale Bible, I thought rather than telling you some story that kind of makes the point for the seventh commandment, I thought I would share with you my story about my experience with the seventh commandment. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is about a 12-year-old story. And so as I sat down with my wife this last week just to prepare for what we wanted to share about our lives, uh, we sat down and we said one of the things that's really hard is uh, this is a 12-year-old story. And she looked at me and she said, you know, it's so funny as we talked through the details, it was actually a very sweet experience for the two of us. She said, we're not those people anymore. And so it's kind of tricky to sit down and to kind of walk through some of these details and figure out kind of what it looks like. What I'd tell you is uh, these are the events that happened before I was in ministry. And uh, in some ways, these are the events that led me back in to the church uh, and eventually into ministry. And so with that as a foundation, uh, I wanna tell you what my life was like in June of 2009. I was at the end of about a 10-year road of running from God. I'd grown up in church, I'd accepted the Lord at a young age, and I'd done everything I could to kind of live with him and please him, but around 17 years old, I, I walked away, and I was gonna go do it on my own. But in June of 2009, I woke up on a bathroom floor, still drunk from the night before, and having just cheated on my wife. I was in the midst of that moment where a lot of things came apart for me. Now, the guy that I thought I was uh, clearly wasn't who I was. And I sat there in that moment and uh, God performed kind of a miracle on our bathroom floor. Uh, after 10 years, I had created a lot of calluses. Places where I used to feel the Lord or seek the Lord had been slowly hardened and calloused. I no longer had those calluses. The miracle the Lord performed on the bathroom floor that morning was all of the calluses were stripped away. And I now had to face not just the man I'd become but the life I'd created without the calluses that were protecting me from a lot of the leadings of the Holy Spirit. I sat there and the, the reality I had created, I wasn't even really facing, but I had created, was I'd spent the first part of my life trying to figure out how to do life with God, and that wasn't working. I'd walked away from God and spent the last 10 years prior to that moment doing life on my own, and that wasn't working either. So, couldn't figure out how to do life with God, couldn't figure out how to do life without God. I think I was just done doing life. And in the midst of that little suicidal wrestling match on my bathroom floor, I felt something nudge at my heart. It was very simply the Lord going, give me one more chance. And I sat there and told him no. I don't want any more chances. I'm done. And then something really powerful happened. The next little tug of my heart was, give me one more chance. We do it my way this time. Never done it his way. I was the king of Jesus plus, which meant... It was always Jesus plus, plus alcohol, plus money, plus sex, plus a chemical or a process. It was Jesus plus something else. And on that morning, on that bathroom floor, all the pluses were gone. It was just me and Jesus. I crawled off that bathroom floor and I made a deal with the Lord. I'll give you till Monday. I thought that was pretty generous of me. <laughs> it's taken me 10 years to create this mess. I figure you'll fix it in 72 hours. 
That Monday morning, I got uh, into recovery from what was a debilitating alcohol issue. As I started into my recovery road, I, I went back to my office that afternoon, and at one o'clock in the afternoon, my wife was in my doorway of my office. She closed the door behind her, and she said, something's happened. You're gonna tell me what it is right now. I said, okay, grab a seat. And I said, well, uh, I went to my first AA meeting this morning, and I'm an alcoholic. And she looked over, and she said, oh, Rustin, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I just remember sitting there and going, proud of me, sure. I said, well, before you go getting all proud of me, why don't we talk about what me being an alcoholic for the last two and a half years of our marriage has looked like? And it didn't take but a minute before she looked at me and said, have you ever cheated on me? I said, yes, I have. And I just took over, I just started talking. I said, Jamie, you should go. You should run. You've been an incredible wife to me. And since the moment you said I do, I've been nothing but a disaster. I don't know what it's gonna take to get me sober, but you should run from me. What happened over the next couple of minutes completely changed my life. My wife looked at me in the midst of a moment where she should have been running away from me, and she said, where do you want me to go? You're all I have. She said, I don't know what we'll look like when this is over, but we're gonna get you healthy, and we're gonna get through this. It was in the midst of that moment where I experienced something that I'd never really allowed myself to experience before. I never would have told you through all those years that any of the things that I was doing weren't sinful. I knew they were sinful. I just would have given you some garbage excuse that justified things. I would have said something probably to the effect of, uh, I know they're sinful, but I also know that the Lord knows why I am the way I am. You know, because of a silly justification like that, I'd never really had to face the things that were pointing me towards the grace and forgiveness I needed. This was the reason I needed grace and forgiveness, but because internally I had excused them away, I never really experienced it. And what was so profound in that morning was I sat there with a woman who should have been running away from me, and she was showing me something about God. This is what hit me right between the eyes. If this is the type of love and forgiveness that God's kids are capable of, then Jesus Christ really might be the God of my wildest dreams. And for the last 12 years, he has been nothing short of that. It's been the hardest road I could have ever imagined. Both of us are so extremely grateful that we didn't know what the road would look like. We probably would have never had the courage to walk it. But one day at a time, the Lord has been faithful to us. He's been faithful to me, even though I wasn't faithful. What I wanna to do today, and the reason I tell you this story is when we talk about the seventh commandment, it's personal for me. It's not conceptual, it's not just theological, it's not theoretical, it is something that I have sat down in my life and had to work out for last over a decade. What I wanna encourage you with today is to sit down and to say, listen, this is my experience. I wanna walk you through what the Bible has to say about this sinful act. I wanna talk about a robust, holistic understanding of all of the different concepts that the Bible uses this phrase in, this word of adultery in. And the point of today, and I need you to hear this loud and clear, the point of today is not to shame anyone for anything they've done, and it is also not to say that anything that anyone has done is okay. So you may ask the question right now, well, how is it not okay and nobody experiences shame? I'm gonna walk through that at the very end of this sermon. So if that's a concern or that's a question in your heart, just stick with me. We're gonna do this together at a pace that I hope will kind of work for everybody. 
But I want you to know that as I've walked this out through the last 12 years, I've done so in your midst, in the family of faith here at Scottsdale Bible. The acts didn't happen here, but the restoration did. This church has loved me through it all. So I get to do something today that the world probably says I shouldn't. And I'm gonna step behind that pulpit and I'm gonna preach a sermon about adultery. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I thank you for the fact that you're bigger than some of the scariest things that we face in our life. I thank you for the fact that you, you move in our midst, that you do things that only you can do. As we sit down today to look at what your word has to say about adultery, as we look at not just what it says, but what it means, we take a full biblical perspective on this thing, my prayer is that you would just be with all of us, prepare all of our hearts. This is a heavy topic. And we're all in so many different places with it. So just as Jamie told us last week, one in six out of 100,000 people experiences this in some way, shape, or form. And so Lord, would you be with us? Would you be kind? Would you be loving? Would you be merciful? And would you be powerful as you look to restore us from what is just one way where we completely miss your sexual ethic and continue to restore your church? We pray this in your precious name, amen. So as we look at this today, uh, you can imagine I go to the commentaries this week and I'm diving in to try and figure out what's going on. What are we gonna talk about? And how's this gonna lay itself out? One of the things that surprises me, when you go into the topic of adultery and you start looking at the commentaries and what they have to say about what the Bible's saying, it's really interesting. You get a paragraph in, they talk a little bit about, hey, here's what it is, here's what's going on. But about the middle of the second paragraph, it starts to transition, all of them start to transition for the next 10 or 12 pages into something else. And you're like, wow, what is it? It's the fact that adultery, just like all of the other do not commandments, are focused on what's underneath them. What is it that adultery leads us away from? And the bigger picture here is that it leads us away from a sexual ethic that God holds to. God has a plan for sex. He has a place where it is made for human flourishing, and in the midst of that flourishing, this is just one of the ways where we can miss. We can miss with adultery, and he not only lays it down, but there's a deeper sexual ethic here, and I think that's why God even lays it out with adultery, because it's a miss, but it's a miss in the area that it takes away from marriage. And so as we walk through this, like Jamie said last week, one in six are tangled up in this in some way, shape, or form. One in six in 100,000. And so what can happen is, we're all walking around in the world, and what I've seen, and I'm gonna walk through this with some detail today, is the fact that God's sexual ethic has been wildly misconstrued, watered down, completely dismantled in some cases, and it's had devastating effects on our marriages, it's made its way into the church, but we've gotta define sex in a way that I think fits the biblical framework and where it's laid out because that sexual ethic is what's under this adultery commandment. So we gotta know what we're working from. Just like in our Sabbath sermon where we go, hey, we're gonna talk about rest, we're gonna talk about Sabbath, we've gotta be able to talk about what's coming against it, which for so many of us in America is work. Same thing with this. If we're gonna talk about adultery, we gotta talk about God's ultimate plan. So let's start by defining God's sexual ethic. What is God's plan for sex? Sex is, first and foremost, for the continuous connection between a husband and a wife, for the continuous enriching of their bond with one another. Between a man and a wife in a marriage, 
for an ongoing enriching. And you may say right away, well, what about procreation, Rustin? What about kids? That's fine. Every commentary went through the same thing over and over again. Biblical scholars saying, first and foremost, ongoing enriching of the bond, procreation, production of children. Yes, they're a blessing. Yes, they're coming out of this act. But I think all of us are probably glad that we're doing more of the enriching than we are producing the children. Like that's a okay thing to say here. Real glad you laughed at that. That could have gone two ways. Here's Here's the reality. I get it, guys. This is a narrow definition. Culturally, this is abhorrent to the sexual ethic that's out there today, which effectively says this. Ryan and I were talking this week, and he said, you know, really, the primary deal for culture's sexual ethic is consent. As long as consent's present, everything's on the table. It's totally true. So when you look at a definition like this that not only narrows who's, who's in the activity, but what the activity's for, you all of a sudden start to go, well, gosh, that leaves a lot of room for misses. I'm so glad you said that. Let's take a look at a quote from J.I. Packer that spells these out in a way that some of them may surprise you. He's talking about, so does God hate sex? To which he responds, passages like Proverbs 5.18 in the Song of Songs show that God, who invented sex, is all for it, in its place. But sexual activity is often out of place when, for instance, it is directed by such motives as, and listen to these because they're all really good, the quest for kicks and relief from mental or physical tension or loneliness or boredom or the desire to control or humiliate or mere animal reaction to someone's sex appeal. Such motives cheapen sex, making it, despite the short-term excitement, trivial and ugly and leaving behind, once the excitement is over, more disgust than delight. You see, most of the time, so many times in culture, even in the church, even in our own marriages, some of these things may crop up. The reality is what they're describing, whether it's relief from mental or physical tension, loneliness, boredom, desire to control or humiliate, all these different things. If sex is used for comfort, that's not its primary motivation. Sex can be comforting, it's just not the point. The point is for connection. So do you see where, whether you make it about comfort from this thing or that thing, if that becomes the sole driving force, you can all of a sudden lose God's design, which is for an enriching with your spouse. And if all of a sudden it becomes, hey, listen, uh, anytime I'm uncomfortable, I've gotta go to sex, which by the way, for a lot of us men is what we're taught early in life. This feels good, go to it for comfort. And all of a sudden the cycle starts and we start going to sex for something it was never designed to be enter a cultural narrative around sex, which is effectively saying this. Over the last 50 years, sex has gone from being something sacred, which is what God designed it to be, and it's gone to something that, just like this quote says, is leaving behind more disgust than delight. Sex has gone from being sacred to being casual. That's the cultural narrative. Hey, we're two consenting adults. We can do whatever we want. So now, whether it's with a partner or with a total stranger, we are now engaging in sex in a casual way. Here's the problem. This is starting to creep its way into the church at a shocking rate. So here's what starts to happen. All of a sudden, sex becomes casual, but we introduce sex into relationships down here when relationships are casual, but because sex is casual, boom, just enter it in there. But then, as relationships continue to progress, 
Sex doesn't come with us. It's cemented in the casual, and as relationships become sacred, sex is still down here. How are you gonna convince someone, no, 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 it's sacred now. No, 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 we were doing it back here. And I was doing it with other people before that casually, and so were you. So even though the relationship progresses to something sacred that God has said should be delightful, we're using it for comfort, we're having an almost animalistic reaction to someone else's sex appeal, you're hot, I'm hot, let's go be hot together, and you're sitting there going, wait, how did this get sideways? Now, based on percentages, there's so many misses when it comes to God's sexual ethic. Adultery is one of them, and I don't need to go into any more detail about how devastating that is, not just to your life or my life, but typically the life of someone else whose family typically also got destroyed. So we're walking through this with an understanding. God's sexual ethic has tons of misses. Pornography, okay, adultery, polyamory, polygamy, there's so many places, same-sex uh, sexual intimacy. There's all these places where it's not fitting God's ideal plan. But I wanna aim, by way of example, at the one that's gonna hit the biggest percentage of us today and talk about it. It's this. It's casual sexual dating. There's so many, so many couples where I sit down, and one of the things that you have, when you have our testimony, okay, we sit down and we do a lot of counseling with couples, Four years, what we were bumping into was we would get couples when they were at the stage where we started to engage with this after it had happened. So it was like, and I've heard this analogy used before, we were at the bottom of the cliff trying to help people who were devastated. So my wife and I decided we'd like to start getting involved with couples before they make the mistakes we made. Let's get to the top of the cliff and see if we can keep people from going over it. And that's where we've done a lot of premarital counseling. It's gotten a little limited. We can't do as much of it as we used to with kids and stuff like that, but I still teach in our marriage prep class. So I walk in on week two, tell the story I just told you, talk about men and women's roles within marriage as defined by the Bible, and then we talk about sex. Most of them are sitting there going, what did we sign up for? Like, <laughs> I thought we were just gonna stamp a couple of things and sign the, you know, check the box and then we could get married in the chapel. They're like, this guy shows up and he's screwing up all sorts of stuff in my relationship. <laughs> Here's what happens in dating so many times. The statements I'm going to make are well-researched. I've talked to many different couples that I've counseled, as well as different counselors. I'm going to speak in some generally true kind of parameters, but I know they're not exhaustively true. Men and women, both, are designed by God to enjoy sex, but we come at it through different motivations, okay? Meaning, Men typically, typically can flow from sex into intimacy, but that flow is different for women. They typically flow from intimacy into sex. And God designed men to be able to sacrifice to make sure that women's needs are met, and that's an easy flow. But here's what happens. Women start to figure out early on and have a deep desire to be connected, to feel safe, and to feel secure. So that often plays itself out in a deep desire to feel loved. So what happens is women figure out early on in a relationship, he's sort of into this. This sort of seems to make him happy. I'm going to give him this through sex. And now what I'm starting to experience is this feels like love because he's actually feeling loving in this way. So I give him sex and he gives me love and I give him sex and he gives me love. And what I talk to all of the couples in this class about, we literally have this conversation, is to sit down and to say, here's the problem. That's not how God designed it to work. Well, what do you mean, Rustin? I mean, we're both enjoying it. We're both having a good time. The problem you have is what it was designed to be was the definition for every husband is this. You treat your bride as Christ treated his, the church. 
How'd that work out for him? It cost him everything. You see, the way dating is designed to function is to show a woman that there is nothing that is more important than loving you, including maybe the primary way that I connect into intimacy, which is through this act, and we flipped the pyramid. Instead of emotional, relational, and spiritual leading to the physical act of bonding and constant enriching like we've defined it today, we start with the bonding and then try and work our way back up. And our pyramids are all over the place. What it's designed to do is to provide a dating relationship where a woman sits back and goes, he's loving me, he's loving me. And there's a lot of relationships where after feeling loved, women are very motivated to say, I would love to connect with you that way. And it's our responsibility as men in a relationship where we are reflecting Christ to our brides, where we sit back and we say, even though that would feel great, I wanna protect you from something. I don't ever want you to stand there and think this, and this is what happens in so many dating relationships, particularly to Christian women. They're sitting there and they go, I give him sex, he gives me love, I give him sex, he gives me love. And the haunting question, the fearful place that a lot of Christian women don't talk about in their heart is if I didn't give him sex, would he still give me love? But they don't talk about it. And then it creeps their way into the marriage because the scariest day for so many Christian women is we were doing this before, and now what I'm terrified about is, is this gonna continue to happen? They get married, oh, don't worry, marriage will solve it. Once we're committed, it'll go away. And the day after their wedding, they're still sitting there going, if I didn't give you sex, would you give me love? Because sex got introduced at the casual, but now it's needed in the sacred. And don't lose hope the Lord can restore this, but in my experience, it takes the Lord's hand to restore it back to something sacred. In our culture today, the narrative is simple. Just have it. It feels good. It's connecting. Do as much of it as you want. You're consenting adults. The only problem is so many people in our culture today are looking and are hungry and are designed by God to find intimacy with another. And they're having as much sex as they can to try and find intimacy. The only problem is, it's like scratching your foot and trying to figure out why your head still itches. You are looking in the wrong place. Brian Kruckenberg, years ago, over at New City, made a quote in a sermon that I loved. He said, if you're not married to someone, the fastest way to lose intimacy with them is to have sex with them. Because it completely distorts. It makes something sacred, casual, and there's all of a sudden this wacky thing. Dating couples report over and over again. We used to do all these romantic things. Once we started having sex, we would come to one of each other's apartments or one of each other's houses. We would have sex after we ate dinner. We might watch a movie, and then we'd go home. You see, it's a sacred thing. God's got a plan for it. This is just one way where God's amazing sexual ethic is getting destroyed. And by the way, this is not generationally specific. We talk about millennials all the time. Oh my gosh, the millennials. I talk to 40, 50, 60 year olds who are casually sexually dating right now. This is a little fact that's fun, okay? Highest STD rate in our city, Sun City West. <laughs> Not asking for a visual, I'm just saying. <laughs> and hang on to that. It's not just my generation that's messing this up. It is culturally a narrative that has crept its way into the church. And this sacred thing that God has said, guys, it works best this way. Don't adultery, don't this. There's a lot of other don'ts. But under the seventh commandment, and this is what we have to hear today, is God's sexual ethic. And it is so good and it is so powerful. But I'll, be, I'll, I'll agree with you on this. It's narrow. It doesn't fit everywhere. 
That's what the Old Testament has to say about adultery. Let's dive in and see what Jesus does in Matthew 5 in the New Testament. Let's read it together. Verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, uh, Jamie came in last week and he did a great job of giving us something that is wonderful. Anytime Jesus takes a commandment and brings it into the New Testament and talks about it, he said this, Jesus is not adding to the law here, he is deepening our understanding of God's original intent of the law. Jesus is stepping in and saying, um, guys, you think it's the physical. It's not just the physical. Adultery can be experienced in the emotional, the relational, and the spiritual. You need to see that what God meant by adultery was not just don't do the physical act. Jesus is taking us past the action to the heart. He is taking us past the action of adultery into thought and emotion. Now again, men and women are wired differently. Okay, for men, what I always do when I counsel and continue to relate to guys is say, listen, here's what we have to do. We have to understand, hey, we're wired visually, we're going to have some awareness, but the reality is having awareness, hey, there's something over there and it ain't mine. That's not who God designed me for. So I gotta stay over here. You can use whatever phrase you want, bounce your eyes, do all the things, but you just go, that's not mine. God didn't give that to me. That's his daughter who doesn't belong to me. He gave me a daughter and I'm gonna do my best to keep my eyes and my heart and my mind on her. For men, it's that dwelling in imagination, taking that woman into our hearts and our longings for her to fill the place that God has designed for our wives. That's what adultery looks like in a Matthew 5 context. It's beyond just that we had the physical act. It's into the place where Jesus goes, I'm peering into your hearts. Women, you're not off the hook on this one. We do a lot of counseling with couples who are experiencing this, and it's about a 50-50 split. Women show up with broken-hearted husbands all the time, and when they do, no woman sits down, and again, we talked about motivations. Men and women both land in sex, they do it differently. No woman has ever sat down in my office and said, here's why I cheated. He was really hot. That's how guys get there. They're visually stimulated, and that starts with, hey, she's attractive, let's see what happens. Here's what happens for women. It starts with the emotional and relational, okay? For some reason, either within them or within the marriage, they have a vulnerability. They may have created it on their own. It may be something that's going on with their relationship, but there's a vulnerability. And instead of clinging to what's at home, there's a notice, there's a tension. Hey, I like your shoes, cute top. Did you get a haircut? And slowly but surely, it starts to lead in to an interesting place. What happens for women is it's that imaginative space where you bring another man into your longings for provision, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, or physically. That's where Matthew 5 hits women. It starts in the heart, and it lands in the bedroom. We're both susceptible to this, and what I wanna spend the rest of our time talking about today is this. I wanna talk about the four groups that could be hearing me right now. Everything I'm about to do with you uh, came out of one of the commentaries, and I love when commentaries get pastoral. So many times they're really dry, they're really academic, and you spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to contextualize highly academic material into a pastoral communication in a sermon. That Kevin DeYoung in his commentary on the Ten Commandments does just a beautiful job of talking to three groups. He talks to the tempted, the wayward, and the brokenhearted. 
I added a fourth group because I want it to be as holistic as possible in my communication to you today as our church. I added the healthy. Here's what we do at church so many times, and I know it's got a purpose, but we take stories like mine, take testimonies like mine, and we sit down and we go, this is where he was, this is what it was like, this is what happened, and this is what it's like now. That's what we do. And people are like, gosh, that's so great, look what God did. But I've had people literally walk up to me and say, well, I don't have a very good testimony. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, it's kind of boring. You know, I've kind of just always done what God told me to do, and you know, I should have just, and I'm sitting there in disbelief and recognizing we need to do a little bit better job shepherding people to say this. If you're healthy today in this area, and you have been living your life in an obedience to God's sexual ethic, blessing you as well as him through your obedience, thank you. I wanna celebrate that today. I wanna tell you God loves your obedience. Our church is benefited by your obedience. And the example that you've set is incredible. That deserves a little bit of recognition today to say if you're healthy, thank you for doing that. Thank you for honoring the Lord. Some of you are sitting there and going, eh, it's just like a millennial to start giving out participation awards, but <laughs> it deserves recognition. You could be healthy today. I appreciate that, all right? Tempted, second example. Tempted, second group. Here's what happens, and, and this is where I can tell you, from experience to the tempted today, run. Don't wait. I can tell you, the act of adultery was one of the most painful, devastating, abhorrent things I have ever done to my life, my wife's life, or our marriage. I had to sit down because she's old enough and talk to my 10-year-old daughter about this last week because I didn't want anybody else to extend that narrative to her. That's not a conversation you ever wanna have to have. Here's what it looks like. If somebody in your life is interesting, it's that person at work, that person at the gym or that relationship within your couple group and you find yourself going, oh, I've got a meeting with them today. He or she is gonna be there. Make sure I look good. I wanna make sure I'm on top of things. Oh, that guy or that gal's over at the gym. I'm gonna kinda linger over by the machine that they're doing and they kinda talked to me today. It was a good day. Or that friend group, hey, we're going out with them. You know, she gave me a hug. It kinda lasted a little longer than I thought. You are playing with fire. And from a guy who has been in the forest fire, those are not burns you ever wanna feel. As your pastor, as your friend, as your brother in Christ, run. To the wayward. When I read this commentary, it was interesting. The tone of DeYoung's writing started to change. He went from the tempted where it was very careful. And I mean, just scads of verses of all the things that say flee. But when he went to the wayward, his tone got aggressive. I was like, oh gosh, I don't know. And then I went, no, no, it should be. If you are currently stuck in the sin of adultery, I want you to know this does not stay quiet. This is not one of those things that that secret ever sits there. If you are sitting there and maybe you've convinced yourself, I like this and I'm not stopping, and here's the only difference between wayward and brokenhearted is just repentance and brokenness. You just haven't hit bottom yet. From a guy who's hit some bottoms in his life, get there fast. Hit bottom, 
Maybe you've convinced yourself that God doesn't want you to be unhappy. I, that drives me insane when I talk to people. Oh, God doesn't want me to be unhappy. And so, you know, my marriage is expendable, but my sexual expression is not. Here's what I wanna just lay out for you today. I can't, hey, you showed up here, we're gonna tell you the truth. This is what it is, I'll tell you this is what it is. Galatians 6, verses seven and eight. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh, he will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit, from the spirit, will reap eternal life. I just wanna tell you the truth today. I've been in those shoes, I want you to hear. As you're living in this sin, if this is you, you're wayward and you're sideways, I want you to know you are laying out seeds of fear, shame, destruction, disaster. Over time, time will water those seeds and they will slowly but surely just start to eat you alive. Get the help that you need. Find an accountability partner, find a counselor, start talking about how and why you got to where you are, and then start devising a plan to sit down and figure out what it looks like to begin a restoration process. I just can't encourage you, don't let this linger. It will eat you and your spouse alive. To the brokenhearted. I wanna deal with this gently because there's two groups here. There's the offended and the offender to the offended. I sat down this week and I just sat with my wife and said, all right, what does this look like? What would you tell them if you were up there? She just said, well, I mean, like, I asked her, like, hey, this is awful. This was a betrayal of devastating effect. It was an injustice. My sin got dumped onto your plate and you had to deal with all of my shortcomings. What would you say to them? She said, very simply, just seek forgiveness. Don't do it for the other person. Seek forgiveness because God longs to set you free from anything that could flow out of this other person's injustice. Whether the relationship survives or not, because the reality is, if, if adultery is committed, it doesn't mean you have to leave, but it means that the Bible covers that. But whether the relationship survives or not, the other person is repentant or not, seek forgiveness because what the Lord longs to do is whether it's out of this relationship and into another or the relationship gets restored, the Lord longs to see you freed of all the things that this injustice could possibly pour into your life. Tell them to seek forgiveness. Now, I can't flush that concept out with any sort of uh, anything that it would need today. So I have a resource for you. This summer, on July 18th, I sat down and preached an entire sermon on forgiveness. And what we've done today is you have a QR code here in this room on the armrests at our campuses. You've got them on the seat backs. If you scan that QR code, that sermon on forgiveness is available and a link in the bulletin today. It's as it's as good as I can say it. It's the research, it's the experience. I've had some things in my own life, not in this area, but in others, where I've had to do some deep forgiveness. I share from my testimony in that and just talk about what does forgiveness look like and why should we pursue it? I'm offering that as a resource today. If you're in that offended category, it might be something good for you to look at. The last thing I wanna say is to the offender. We're, gonna, we're answering that question. How is what somebody did not okay and yet nobody experiences shame? I, I preached a sermon on 2 Corinthians 7 a while back. It, here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 9 through 10. As it is, this is Paul speaking, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. 
For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Here's what Paul's talking about. Again, I don't have time to do all this today, but here's just a taste. Godly grief produces repentance. It also produces humility. But it produces repentance, which leads to salvation. I can tell you, I had to walk that road. Like, I'm just gonna tell you today, you don't get up and tell 8,000 people your testimony when it looks like mine if the Lord hasn't done some work around shame. I couldn't do that. But what the Lord walked me through was experiencing a godly grief where I had to sit there, and it was brutal, but I could do it because of the restoration. Look at my wife and start walking through things as she started to share, like, hey, this is what it felt like. This is what happened. This is what's going on. And be able to go, that's right. I did that. The humility that gets produced is different than the worldly grief, which is condemnation. You spend the rest of your life in shame. You say for the rest of your life, I can't forgive myself. And in this sermon, I say it plain and clear. If you're making the statement, I can't forgive myself, the theological reality of that is this. You are making the statement that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not enough. And you're gonna continue to go on trying to earn your forgiveness. And our works as human beings are nothing compared to the precious blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross for your salvation. So my encouragement is, again, that QR code will take you to a link to a sermon that I preached back in 2017 called, Why Do I Feel This Way? I just wanna encourage you, if that's where you need work, if shame is a challenge, go back and check that out. Here's the last thing, and I promised you we would look at a full biblical lens of what's adultery, where's adultery used, where's the concepts, here's the last concept, the last way that adultery is used in the scriptures. God calls his people his bride. He uses specific wedding language to talk about how we are connected back to the Lord. Let's take a look at Isaiah 54. It says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer the God of the whole earth, he is called. Let's bump over, look at Isaiah 62. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God calls us, his church, his people, his bride. He also does something else. God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when he talks about his people and the idea of them giving their worship, their affection, or priority to anything other than him, he uses this phrase, adultery. God is saying to us as his kids and everybody in this room, either one of two ways, you've either experienced it and you know the tremendous pain of betrayal, or you've caused it and you've watched that betrayal, or you're in this room and haven't, but you can imagine what that would feel like, even conceptually, God looks down and says, that's what it feels like when I lose you. When you produce an idol, money, sex, a chemical, a process, a job, children, when you put anything ahead of me, it feels like what you guys feel when you experience adultery. That's what God says. Edmund Clowney's got a great quote about Ezekiel 16. This is what he says. It says, Ezekiel 16 compares the Lord's love to that of a young man who discovers an abandoned baby girl kicking in her blood by the side of the road. He finds the girl, washes and clothes her, and provides for her as she grows into a beautiful young woman. 
He then marries her, spreading his robe over her in protection and claiming her as his beloved bride. God says that he has taken to himself his bride, his people, Israel. But the bride, wedded to the Lord in his covenant, becomes a prostitute and offers up the children of the Lord to heathen gods. The Lord will judge her, but at last restore her and establish his covenant with her. Let me ask a question just as we talk about us and the Lord in this final kind of time. I want you to imagine with me for a moment you meet your spouse, okay? Or if you're single, you meet the person in your dreams. It's a wow moment. You kind of walk up and as you start to move closer and closer to them, you recognize that they have a sign hanging around their neck. And around their neck on this sign, it says something very simple. It says, I will cheat on you. I will break your heart. In the midst of that moment, would you marry them? Would you give everything that you have to them? Would you trust yourself to them? Would you give to them the best of your plans and your dreams, knowing that at some point in the relationship, they were going to betray and destroy your heart in the process? That's the metaphor that God uses for the times in our lives when we worship or prioritize earthly things ahead of him, and we do it all the time. As Christians, we are idol factories. As humans, we produce idols, short-term things that bring us gratitude, and we start to give everything we have to them. We get stuck in our own little addictions all along the way. That's what we do. But instead of looking at us when we do this and in anger walking away, God does something profound. When we come back to God over and over and over again because we, I, am in need of his grace and I come back to the God of the Bible and I go, I've done it again. I, I gave myself to this earthly thing, whatever it is, and in that process, it let me down. And so, Lord, I'm repenting from that thing and I'm back with you. Will you forgive me? Instead of looking at me and going, hey, Rustin, I'm done, he says something profound. I knew you'd do this. And Rustin, I loved you anyway. That's where adultery starts to take on a completely different lens. This is why we sit back and we say, how good is our God? That's why we sit back and we talk about how the Bible is saying over and over again, his love is everlasting. He's the God of the brokenhearted, the father to the fatherless. He came to set captives free. He'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. He is faithful when we are faithless. And when we wander, he is right there as that dad in that story, waiting to greet the sun running over the horizon. He doesn't look at him and say, what have you done? If you're back, you know what you've done. I'm here to embrace you and restore you. That's the good news of the Bible. And when we sit down and we think about the incredible expanse of what adultery really looks like, we have to sit back and understand that there's an earthly reality that is painful. You could be in any place with that today. But there's a spiritual reality between us and the Lord that he says, I am so hungry for your affections, for your worship. I'm a jealous God. And his jealousy is in our best interest because he's the only, I say this all the time, he is the only entity in the cosmos that his jealousy for our affections and our attentions is best for us because he's the only thing that will ever fill the depths of our heart. And anything, the reason the Bible's such good news, it's God's way of saying, 
I got a plan. And that plan is best for you. His sexual ethic, it's best for us. Living by it, though cumbersome at times, is best for us. Anything short of it will either lower your bar and not completely fulfill what God has for that area, or in some cases, it will completely devastate the bar in your life in the process. I don't want that for any of you. And this is what the truth sounds like today. Would you bow your heads? Let me pray for us. Lord, this is a lot. I'm aware of it. I pray that today as we walk this out, you'd be with all of us. We're all at different points. Lord, as we're going to the communion table now, my prayer is simple. That to the brokenhearted, you would be the God of the brokenhearted, whether offended or offender. To the wayward, Lord, that you would call a deep time of conviction, draw them back, restore them, heal them. I know it's possible. To the tempted, Lord, would you bring that strong, corrective, just warning through today. It's time to turn around. It's time to come home before it gets any worse. And Lord, to the healthy. Even as we live in health at times in our lives, it's still easy for us to connect to this concept through some of the idols that we create and to recognize that you call us to something deeper. Father, we pray, we give ourselves to you as we approach the table today. Our, our only way that we can come is exactly how and where we are. Lord, our prayer is that you will meet us in the midst of these moments. We give ourselves to you. Amen.